0: It is quite an honor to say that I have with me the man who is the former national Greco-Roman wrestling champion. He aspired to the heights of becoming a member of the United States Olympic wrestling team. Yes, and of course, that's the man we all know as Bob Root.
1: Welcome back to the Wrestling Stoop Podcast, and very soon we will be joined by the legend himself, the host of the show, Mr. Bob Roop, and of course I am your co-host, Ray Russell, along for the ride. Had such a fun time on the debut show, I hope you guys did too. I encourage everyone to keep those comments, those likes, those retweets, those shares, those reposts coming. Spread the word that Bob Roop is out here now on the airwaves, guys, talking all about his time in the professional wrestling business. And before we bring Bob back onto the show, just a couple of things to get out of the way so we can get right into the good stuff. And the first one being just a friendly reminder that you guys can listen to the Wrestling Stoop Podcast and our sister shows, like the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories, guaranteed 100% territory talk each and every time out. Currently covering two different projects there on Regional Wrestling, including 1981 in Georgia Championship Wrestling with guest co-host Jamie Ward, as well as 1986 in Bill Watts' UWF territory. Well, I guess Bill's gone national by that point. And we cover those episodes with guest co-host Roman Gomez. You can also listen to the granddaddy of them all, the original podcast here on The Brand, talking about the Wrestling Memory Grenade. For the past year or so, we've been covering the year of 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation. I guess you could call it the 1987 WWF Project. But now it's coming to a close. We're in the month of December and heading into the year of 1988. Will Hulk Hogan sell the WWF Championship to the evil million-dollar man, or won't he? Find out in the next couple weeks here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade again as we head into the 1988 Project for the World Wrestling Federation over there on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. Also listen to Monday Warfare: The Battles Within. It's Raw versus Nitro, covering the entire history of the Monday Night War one week at a time. Almost through the first year of the ratings war, guys, as WCW has just recently began their reign of 83 weeks on top, thanks in part to the formation of the new World Order. New episodes of Monday Warfare coming very soon and a couple more new podcasts headed to the network in the next few weeks, month or so. So stay tuned for more details on those shows as they grow closer. And you can listen to all of those podcasts and more as part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com. And anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Google and beyond. And you can also follow me and Bob on social media, guys. Head over to Facebook right now. Look up the name Bob Roop. Bob accepting new friends as we speak. And he'd love to speak and hear from all of you guys. Also, you can follow me, Ray Russell, on social media for all the latest goings on here at the Russell Copia Podcast Network. And I'm also constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history all over social media, including you can follow me on Twitter or X as they call it now. Follow me over there at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, Follow and like me Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And while you're at it, make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel, guys. YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. Uploading new footage all the time. More than 500 videos right now up there at YouTube and counting. And of course, now would be a superb time to become a WrestleCopia patron. Talking about that $5 all-access tier. And you can find us over there at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address, again, patreon.com slash wrestlecopia. And what do you get as part of that $5 all-access tier, Ray? Well, I'm glad you guys asked. You get all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes, talking about pages and pages of show notes for every episode of the Grenade, Monday Warfare, and the Regional Wrestling Podcast. Plus, you'll get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia. As our current patrons know, the debut episode as well as this episode of the Wrestling Stoop both dropped One week early for patrons only. So yes, indeed, early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia. Listen days, sometimes more than a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. You'll also get remastered versions of the earliest episodes of the WrestleCopia shows. Includes enhanced sound quality and new content and conversation. Originally edited out of the initial broadcast due to time restraint. Edited right back into the show. But that's still not all, guys. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure just added 13 new digital downloads this past week alone, mostly focusing on the years of 1976 and 1983 and the history of professional wrestling. Plus, you'll also get random bonus video drops and, of course, our Patreon-exclusive Watch Along series covering many past WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Coliseum videos, Saturday Night's Man events, Clash of the Champions, and so much more. And remember, Patreon now offering collections areas, subfolders, making the particular gifts you're looking for that much easier to find. Looking for a digital download? Click on the digital download folder. Looking for one of our bonus videos? Head over to the bonus video folder. You guys get it. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5, guys. No subscription. Cancel anytime. Show your support. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like the content that I offer. And every penny of it goes right back here into the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So please, if you have a few bucks to spare, you're looking to support that next up-and-coming podcast brand, please consider making it WrestleCopia. And as you can hear from my voice, guys, through sickness and in health, I try to bring you guys the most quality product, providing information and entertainment. So if you can, help me pay some of these bills around here, guys, to keep the WrestleCopia Podcast Network up and running for the months and the years to come. But all right for now. That's enough about all of that. Let's get into the meat and potatoes portion of the show, what you guys came here for. Let's bring him back on the show. Welcome back, Bob Roop, to the show. Bob had so much fun last week. Looking forward to week number two.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, man, I'm ready to go. Well,
1: it's good to hear. Hopefully you've had a a week to sit and think and listen to that first episode. And I'm sure lots of people hopefully still sending in some feedback on that first episode, but we're just going to keep rolling, guys. Remember last week, I didn't forget, we will touch on it here at the top of the show in just a few minutes, that poor fellow who got in the ring with the likes of Billy Robinson and the Iron Sheik, and maybe Bob was lurking around there somewhere watching what was going on. We'll talk about that. But first... You caught me off guard. We were getting ready to record, and you mentioned a story involving the one and only Hulk Hogan guys, and uh, Bob, I wasn't really ready for it, so I, I said, you know what? Let's save it for on air. So I don't even know the whole story yet. I just know you mentioned something about maybe, maybe saving his life and his career, perhaps, but what you going to do?
0: Well, uh, one day, at, uh, uh, right after it was uh, Wednesday afternoon, we had television taping at the Exploratorium. And right after after taping, we had to go jump in our cars. If we were driving, the, the show that night was in Miami. And the, the taping was in the early afternoon. So sometimes you wouldn't get out of there until three thirty four o'clock, which means you really had to hightail it to, you know, Miami was 250 miles from Tampa. So you really had to t- hightail it. A lot of times we'd fly, uh, we'd get a private, get a private plane, three or four of us would get together and uh, it was, you know, it was expensive, but uh, it, it beat having to drive like a maniac all the way down there. So one day I came out, and I was getting ready to leave, and uh, this guy, this big bond guy with long hair and wearing a tank top and uh, beads, had a necklace of beads and beads on his wrist and uh, came right up to my car and uh, knocked on the window. I put my window down. And he says, "Hey, man," and he says, uh, "I'm going to be." I'm going to be here Tuesday to work out with you. Yeah, I just talked to Eddie Graham. He's going to he's going to have me work out with you and uh uh I said okay. Uh yeah, I, I said I have a idea that uh let me let me get back to you on that. Hang around here a minute. So, I went back inside and I asked Eddie about it. I said, well, "What's that about?" And uh he said, "Yeah," he said that guy's a hippie. He said uh got you know, hair and everything. He said I hate him. He said uh um, you know, I want you to I want you to stretch him. So uh, I okay. I went back, I went back, and I told Terry, he introduced himself as Terry Boley. I said, hey, uh, I just checked. Uh, all he wants me to do is uh, discourage you. Uh, he's not ready to give you a break of any kind. He wants me to stretch the hell out of you. I said, I'm not going to be here. So if you come down here, uh, I'm not going to be here. Well, he seemed to appreciate that. But He was working, at, uh, Terry did. He was working in a band. He was a, a bass player in a band, and he was working there in Tampa uh, at the time. And uh, and over the next couple of weeks, I, I actually went uh, once. I went by myself. Another time, I took my girlfriend, who later became my wife, and we went out and listened to him play. And I, we danced a few times to his music. Uh, another time, he played in uh, Sarasota. I went out there on a a uh, weekend night that we, were, we weren't we were wrestling. I went out and listened to him play. So, you know, I had some little association with him. And then I left. Uh, when I left Florida, a few years later, a couple, mm-hmm. three years later, he had been broken into the business. Right. Uh, and uh, I was working. I was booking in Knoxville. I got a call from a guy named Terry Gibbs who had worked for me oh, in yeah, Knoxville. I, know, I used
1: to talk to Terry a lot in the late 90s.
0: Right. And Terry called me and he says, Hey, Bob, he said, uh, uh, Terry, uh, Terry Boulay is uh, looking for work. He said, he's, he's been working out. He took a year off. He's been working out with the waist. He's enormous. You know, he's humongous. He looks great. He said, Can you book him? And I said, No. I said, Terry, uh, I said, now Terry was down in Tampa at the time. He, was, he took a week off. I said, Terry, do you want me to, do you want me to give you your notice? He said, uh, no, why would you do that? I said, because the only way I can hire somebody else is I have to get rid of somebody. I said, well, don't, we don't have any wrestlers on our program that don't work every night. So, uh, you know, if you want to, I, I, I don't have room for him." I said, what I'll try <laughs> to do, though, Louis Toulet was was booking Pensacola. Mm-hmm. And I, so I said, what I'll do is I'll call Louis and, uh, and see if Louis can get him in down there. And I did call Louie. I told him about him. And apparently, I'm not sure, but I think that he actually worked there for Louie. So a year or two goes by. We're in Tampa. This is another story. They were having a—we we were running opposition. This is when we'd gone opposition to Ron Fuller in Knoxville. Mm-hmm. And Florida Florida was sending wrestlers up there to go against us. So we, we decided to go down to Florida and run opposition against the Florida we we got together with a local wrestler named Ronnie Hill, who promoted the show. We didn't draw anything. It was just more of a symbolic thing that we went down to, okay, you run opposition against right. us. We're gonna... I get you. So well, while we were there, we discovered they were having a tough man contest. And these were, these were this was fairly new at the time. So we thought, what if we enter the tough man contest? And then when we're out there, we can say, hey, where are the Tampa wrestlers? Where are the Florida wrestlers? So Ronnie, Bobby, Orton, and myself—we entered a Tough Man contest. <laughs> was that was to have to do with Terry Bulay. While we were there, we went out clubbing. Uh, maybe later that night, or maybe it was the night before. I went out to club to get a beer, and I saw him. And uh, you know, he looked great, humongous. I walked up to him, you know, and I, like I say, I'd known him. I, as far as I knew, everything I'd done for him had been positive. I walked up to him to like to say hi. He just snubbed me. He was talking to some girl. He just snubbed me like I was invisible, you know. So I just turned around, walked away, and I've never had any use for him ever since. <laughs> uh, I mean, I you know that's fine. I, I, you know, I when I think about it, I thought that perhaps he didn't want to be remembered before he would be, he'd become a, a star by this time. Sure. Uh, he, yeah. So. He didn't want to be reminded of his days when he wasn't a star. Maybe he knew I was opposition. That could have been another reason. Because uh, that's another whole story. But when we went opposition, every wrestler in the business except Carl Cox uh, that we ran into wouldn't talk to wouldn't talk to us. they were afraid oh, wow. to talk to us. Okay. Yeah, pro wrestlers are afraid to talk to their colleagues because they're working opposition. They were afraid they'd get they'd get in trouble with the promoters if they talked to us. So, Carl Cox time we were driving a bunch of guys stopped at a gas station we we had pulled in before them and they pulled in to get gas and they were out of their car and, you know the guys were going in the store to get a uh, pop or something before they saw us and once they saw us they all hustled back to the car and got ready to take off carl cox was with them carl got out and carl and i were buddies carl got out and he said bob he said these chicken crap sobs they're all too scared to talk to you, but he said, "I want to say hi, wish you luck, and what you're doing." It was your opposition. He said, "I tried to do it, but I couldn't." Uh, the guys in my area just as chicken shit as these guys, so they I couldn't get any help either. He said, "Best of luck to you." Mm-hmm. So, uh, and he was the only guy. The rest of them were afraid to even talk to us, which is, you know, it's just so ridiculous, it's mind blowing that you'd be, you know, that intimidated.
1: I don't want to. I don't want to sidetrack you from where you're going here. But I just wanted to go back before we move on. Um, so you kind of would have been the first person in line to stretch Hulk Hogan. And the story goes it was actually Hero Matsuda who winds up breaking his leg uh, in order to discourage him. But Hogan did come back, believe it or not, and uh, went on to you know have the career that he had. But it's kind of funny to know that you were in that hero Matsuda spot first, and you were just honest with him. You went back out and told him, "Look, man, this they don't want they don't want you to succeed. Uh, if you come here on let's say Friday." You know, you're not going to get a job. I'm, I'm. They're literally telling me to come in here and cripple you to a degree, which is what yeah. happens to him. But he does yeah. come back to his own credit, uh, surprisingly. <laughs> and uh, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But it's kind of funny to know that you know you were initially the one put in that spot, which you had been in the previous times as well with other people that to discourage them, if you will.
0: Right. Well, one uh, Hulk, Bo, Terry, whatever you want to call him, he didn't come back right away. He stayed. He smartened up. He he realized they weren't, you know, it wasn't suitable. He came back later. But mm-hmm. that ankle thing, that ankle thing that uh, Hero did with him, he did it with me too. The so, first thing, the first time we worked out, uh, he he did it with me. And I it's where I'm down in the referee's position where I'm on my knees and my hands on a mat. Like, mm-hmm. it's an amateur uh, referee's position, it's called. and and hero stood behind me, and then when when he to go, he dropped his knee on the back of my ankle, like on the Achilles tendon, which that in itself could have ripped sure. the Achilles tendon. Right. Then I turned sideways with it because in wrestling, one thing you learn to do is you go, you know, you go with the pressure. You don't go against right. it. You go right. with it. So I had, I turned so that he didn't hurt my ankle. He reached down and grabbed my toe. Well, I had turned to face him by this time. I mean to face backwards. My body was between us. But he was close enough. I reached up and grabbed his hair. I stuck my thumb on his eye. And I didn't press hard, but I, I let him know, if you fall up on my ankle, you're going to have a different outlook. And in the very near future, you're going to have a very different outlook on things. And uh, he let go immediately. And within five seconds, he started teaching me how to hook. That was the last thing that he ever tried. That was, a, that was like initiation. And that's what he did to Hulk to see if he could defend himself. Okay. And he he couldn't. So there's insight on the
1: movie. We've heard the story for decades. Hulk's told the story. Other people have told the story about him going in there and Hiro Matsuda breaking his ankle or whatever, wherever it was down there in his leg. And, you know, he came back and he, you know, eventually became a pro wrestler. But the insight of how it was done and, and what Hiro did and why he did it, it's a little more than just, well, cripple this guy. I want to deter him from, you know, coming back. It was. it's sort of a passageway, too. Like, can this guy do anything? And I'm going to show this guy, you know, see what he's all about. But I love that you gave us the details of how the move works, that, that hooking style, that shooting style of trying to cripple the person, what he did. Like, it's never been broken down before like you did it. So that was very cool.
0: Well, it's a good point, Ray. But again, I'll just, uh, last one last comment. Mm-hmm. If you know how to defend yourself at all, you know how to avoid that. When When they do that, you know what to do. If you don't know how to defend yourself, well, then you you get hurt. And so that's what the test was. Also, there's another part to it. Terry had no value to them at the time. You know, they didn't know they they had a lot of big muscular guys that never did, you know, never did anything. Right. But what is another test was to see if he was hurt, will he come back? And so that was, it was like a double test. Can he defend himself? And if he can't he wanted to come back and learn how to defend himself. And that's right. what was going on. That's what was going on.
1: Well, I mean, like I said, the rest is history, as we all know. He he made himself a couple bucks, I think,
0: somewhere along the way. <laughs> so, so it all broke <laughs> oh, down. He made Vince Mc- McMahon a billion dollars, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he got some of it, too. So uh, another story I
1: want to touch on real quick before we get back into the career of Mr. Bob Roop. And that story is... The, the poor guy you were talking about, we were talking about Hulk Hogan getting his ankle broken by Hero. Let's talk about this guy you were talking about. Eddie Graham didn't really want this guy to succeed either, maybe, or just maybe really wanted to try him really well. You talked about a line of guys that were coming into the ring to work out with this, this fellow, this poor, poor guy. Of the likes of the names you dropped were Billy Robinson, Kazro Vaziri, which was the Iron Sheik. There was somebody else in there, too, I felt like was a, was a shooter or an amateur or something. And I know you said maybe Bob Orton as well. Danny Hodge. <laughs> Danny, okay, well, that enough said. Yeah. Danny Hodge yeah. and Billy Robinson and even Sheiky Baby yeah. in the ring at the same yeah. time. Oh, this just yeah. doesn't, Danny, this, this can't end yeah.
0: well. Danny, who won a silver medal in the Olympics of wrestling. And mm-hmm. Cosgrove, who took third in the world at amateur wrestling. Billy Robinson, who w- w- apparently went to some school in England called Wigan. The Wigan, yeah. You that's to, just nasty. Where you learn nasty. how to hook and hurt people. Uh, yeah, the three of them, when I got there, they, I got a call that they wanted me to come down to the office. They didn't say why. Was, Can you come down to the office? So I said, okay. I drove down there. I went in the back. Charlie Lay was up front. He said, they're waiting for you in the back. When I went back there, Cosro and, and uh, Missouri and Danny Hodge were in a ring shooting uh, amateur style. And within, uh, I don't know, 30 seconds or so, Danny took Castro down. Uh, in like a takedown. Danny had a single leg. He could take down anybody in the world. He took Cosgrove down, and that was it. That was all they were, were going to try, was see who could take uh, the other one down, apparently, because they stopped after that. Well, this kid showed up, nice-looking kid. He was handsome. He bleached his hair, but it wasn't blonde. It was like white. Had a nice tan. He was well-built, weighed about uh, probably 190 pounds, uh, probably ten. Nice-looking kid, respectful, appropriate, uh, humble, and he thought he was going to get a tryout. Well, you know, uh, Dick Murdoch happened to be there too. Murdoch used to <laughs> live by himself in town. He always come to the office to find out if anything was going on, and something that you know kind of keep from being you know by himself all the time. So he was there watching too. And uh, Bobby, in fact, Bobby Orton and I, Bobby Jr. and I, came down there together. We were tag team partners at the time. So it started out, Billy Robinson was the first one. He wanted to be first to start with this guy. <laughs> and, uh, just right uh, into right the
1: lion's mouth,
0: right? Yeah. And so Billy pushed him, pushed the kid in the ropes and uh, put his hands down. And when the kids put his hands down, Billy went to headbutt him and uh, in the face. And the kids reared back and just shot at his hands and pushed Billy. And Billy fell flat on his butt. Oh, no. Now, if I was the kid, I would have kicked him right in the face. Now, I will know it's a shoot. Now, of course, this kid was way too intimidated to do that. What I'm saying is Billy left himself wide open there. So he jumped up and he was going to, he like grabbed the kid. I don't know what he was trying to cover the fact that he'd just been a meter. Bobby Orton jumps up. He ran to the ring. He jumped up on the opposite side of the ring. He ran along on the apron all the way around the other side. He goes to headbutt the kid from the side. The kid ducks into it. Bobby smashes his eyebrow into the kid's head, busts open his own eyebrow. I think it took seven stitches or whatever to get that close. Oh, man. Uh, it's not going so, the way
1: I envisioned it. Oh, man. No, no.
0: <laughs> well, you know, the kid was just defending himself. Sure. And I just said, I said well, I, there's no way I could stop it. I just said, I don't want any part of this. So I just left. Uh They didn't kill him, as far as I know. I didn't hear of any. I didn't read a paper about <laughs> any anybody, obituaries. Yeah, any <laughs> obituaries. But yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't real impressed. I mean, you're bringing out, you're bringing down world class wrestlers to deal with a guy that any high school wrestler could easily handle. That's, well, that's what I was
1: going to ask you. Wasn't this overkill? You talk about this kid. He was humble. He wasn't just didn't have an ego. He didn't walk in there. Some people have those. And you said he was respectful. He was humble. He gets in the ring with these guys. And uh, I mean, look at the, look at the, it's, it's like murderers row there, you know? I mean, shit, that's a lot of, that's yeah. a lot of scary names. Like it's just felt like overkill. Any one of those guys would be more than enough to handle your typical, you know, person walking in there to try out. But all of those guys together, I just, I felt like there had to
0: be more to the story. You talk about overkill. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, if there was a NCAA champion the size of Andre the giant, maybe, but, yeah, uh, Billy. Uh, I found out, you know, I found out just this last year. Now, Billy Robinson passed away, mm-hmm. so I don't want to badmouth him, but I found out that uh, Billy helped run the the breaking in school up there for Vern Gagne. And one of the things Billy liked to do, uh, my my good buddy uh, Baron von Raske, Jim Raske is his first name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim and I have been friends since 1964. We were both on the All-Army and the All-Service team. Uh, It was through wrestling uh, with Jim for just three months. Uh, All I had behind me was a state championship. Uh, I didn't have any college matches under my belt. And uh, I had a high school state championship. And by Jim, Jim had been third in the world at 1963 in Greco-Roman at the World Games. I worked out with him for three months up at West Point on the All-Army team. And we became dear friends to this day. Uh, but just working out with him by th- for three months, when I went to the Olympic tryouts that year, I took fourth in freestyle and fourth in Greco-Roman. Or I pla- let's put it this way. I placed in the top five. Now, they only took the top two. But uh, at the Olympic tryouts, Larry Kristoff, who we've talked about last week, right? Uh, Larry, Larry won the uh, freestyle. So he was a freestyle, uh, uh, and the Olympics were in Tokyo that year. So Larry was a freestyle heavyweight. Rashke, my buddy, was one the freestyle or the Greco-Roman uh, Olympic tryouts. He was a Greco-Roman, but at training camp, uh, the second place guy, what I was told was an illegal move, and hyperextended Jim Raske's elbow, uh-huh. so he couldn't. He was hurt. He couldn't wrestle. The other guy went and wrestled in the Olympic Jim's place. But anyway, uh, Jim was telling me about training. Well, I always had a—he uh, got heat with me. Jim Rasky, third in the world in 1963. Yeah. Well, I already told—last week I told our listeners and you the way I was treated when I started. Uh, you know, I had Harold Matsuda tried me for 20 seconds and immediately started training me how to— accepted me as a trainee to learn how to work, to get in the rank. Mm-hmm. Vern made Jim Rasky third in the world, higher than I ever did, third in the world of Greco-Roman. He made Jim Rasky referee pull Polo Ring for a year. Wow. Now, and Jim's also a college graduate, by the way. So and that, bug, that always bugged me. You know, what does a guy have to do to earn his spurs? Being third in the world isn't enough? Yeah, I mean, just to, to be you trained. Think, That's you think it.
1: Vern would you know, have respect, too, for, for that him being a former you know, amateur as well? As big as he was in the amateurs, Vernaglia, and then here comes Jim Rashke, who should—I'm sure he did respect, because he used him for decades, seemingly, and gave him title belts and things like that. But it's—it's kind of odd. You're right, but these promoters—they all had their own way of breaking guys in, I, I guess. It's, it's, you're right, though. It's—it's it's silly that—and I'm not going to talk about credentials as far as you versus Baron von Rashke goes here. But at the same time, you're right. Here in Florida, you know, let's just say your guys are on the same level. You get to do it this way, he's doing it that way. So maybe you made the right call starting down there in Eddie Graham's
0: territory. I I, I th- you know what? I wouldn't I wouldn't have blasted in uh I wouldn't have lasted in uh Minnesota. in Minnesota. Right. Yeah, if I went to training camp and somebody like Billy Robinson slapped me or something, I'd beat the crap out of him. <laughs> I would have. You know, <laughs> you talk, you know, I, I worked thirteen years to be standing here as an Olympic an Olympian. And you're going to make me be, degrade me? You're going right. to put me down? Yeah, I don't think so. And you can only be put down, folks. This goes for everybody. You can only be put down if you agree to be put down. That's it. There's no, right. that's true. There's no way anybody can put you down. They could try. But unless you agree to it, you can't be put down. That's always been my attitude. I respect, I said earlier, I said earlier well, last week, I said I had ultimate respect for people who were already in a business because I didn't know anything. But likewise, uh, if we're training and we're doing amateur wrestling, we're doing push-ups and squats and all that. Uh, I'm I'm up there. I've already done all that for years and years and years. I don't have to start the bottom at that level. Yeah, but Jim, you know, to his credit, uh, we talked about it last year because it had bothered me for years. But Jim Rasky, uh, and our we we meet every year at the Hall of Fame at uh, Waterloo, mm-hmm. the Trago Thes Hall of Fame and. Jim and I are. I think I'm six left on uh, alive of the inductees, and I think Jim is the fourth or maybe third. There's only about a, a, a this still left alive, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know. I mean, bless all the guys that are gone. But uh, anyway, I've started getting more more attention. I I didn't get any attention at all when all the really famous guys were still alive and showing up. Right. But now that a lot of them are gone, if you just, so my secret is just be, hang around long enough. Hang <laughs> Yeah. You'll, you'll finally get noticed. But, by, by attrition. Uh, <laughs> yes. But but like I say, Jim never minded. But yeah, that was that was Billy's uh, thing up there was uh, putting guys through the, well, Ollie Anderson tried out up there. And uh, Danny Hodge was working there and all those guys stretched him uh, before he ever got into the business. So, no wonder uh, he was so miserable.
1: <laughs> no, just, I kid guys. I
0: kid. Oh, he, wa well, oh he could be, uh, he could make other people miserable. He was a <laughs> he was a pretty he would I only I'd I respected only I liked him. Uh he was he shot from the shoulder. You know, he didn't pull any punches. Uh if you were okay, nah, that was fine. You know, act you're supposed to be. If you weren't okay, he would tell you.
1: <laughs> yeah, big foul crap. I believe that. I believe that. I believe Get that. out of here. All right, so we'll uh <laughs> <laughs> I know you've got a lot of Oli stories, so we'll save those for maybe not just another time, but multiple times down the road. I know oh, yeah. a few of them already. I've already heard a few from you, and I look forward to more. I'm sure you have endless stories involving Oli Anderson, which I know the listeners can't wait for. But right now, Bob, if it's okay with you, let's take let's go all the way back. Last episode, for those who have already listened to it, uh, you guys know where we ended. We talked about you breaking into the business, getting ready for your very first match in the ring And if you guys haven't listened to it, what are you you waiting for? Go back and listen to episode number one. But we're going to continue on now, Bob, with your career, which actually starts here in 1969, in the summer of 69, I do believe.
0: Right. After graduation, which was in June, I loaded up and uh, came down to Florida, uh, drove down to Florida from Michigan, I believe. Got an apartment and started training. And I don't remember the date of my first match. I should. It's a we can probably find it, but uh, there's a funny twist to the first match. The last time, when we talked about uh, coming down and, and having a look-see uh, with me and Larry Kristoff, mm-hmm. no, I take it back. It wasn't a look-see. It was while I was still training. I hadn't I hadn't broken in yet, but I was still training. I was asked to go to Jacksonville uh, to do just a walk, a walk in the ring and be introduced type thing, just to, mm-hmm. like, you know, introducing an Olympic and that sort of thing. And they had me ride with, ride with uh, Dick Dunn and Don Carson. I had not either one of them. The Imperial Room Lounge I mentioned earlier. The, it party was the place. <laughs> yeah, the party place on Tuesday night after the matches. But the parking lot also was not far from the highway going, going uh, east towards Jacksonville from Tampa across the state. Uh, Jacksonville was on one coast, and Tampa was on the Gulf, uh, the Tampa Bay there. So uh, I got in the car with uh, in the back seat of uh, Dick Dunn was driving. Darn Carson is a heck of a river. Now, I didn't know that. Time,
1: <laughs> you know, but, I, I've never heard that about him, but I could see that just based on his personality and his promos.
0: Oh, he's uh, he, unbelievable. I mean, he's funny. He's, I, I I I lived with him later in my career. I lived with him <laughs> for six months. What a riot! Anyway. I, you know, these two, these are two veterans. I'm a newcomer. Like I said, I felt like I was a private in the Army, and I'm riding with two majors, uh, you know, and they're way up there. So I'm not saying anything until uh, I get spoken to, you know, if they ask me something or if they want to talk to me. Well, they (laughs) ignored me (laughs) the entire way, coming and going. And what they talked about was how wrestlers, amateur wrestlers, Never make it in pro wrestling. <laughs> never. Yeah. And they're talking back and forth just like I'm not even there. You know, they say, yeah, it's funny, those guys just never make it, you know. It doesn't matter how good they were, amateur, they're just and they're just absolute crap as pro wrestlers. <laughs> and oh, by the time we got twenty miles down the road, I was burning. I was so hot. But what am I gonna say? Right. You know, what am I saying? <laughs> I haven't made it yet, so I don't know. Now the card that night should have told me because Jack Briscoe was on top and Dale Lewis was on the card, who were huge amateur
1: wrestlers, right?
0: Huge, yeah. So I should have picked it up right there, but they kept it up on the way back, you know. And they don't want to ever said a word to me. I mean, I don't mean <laughs> hello. Get out of the car. You got to stop. Nothing.
1: Well, they had so, you smoking hot, man. So you couldn't oh, see the forest man. for the trees. You didn't realize. Wait, wait a minute. But Jack Briscoe's main evincing tonight. Well, all right.
0: <laughs> so. All right, let's fast forward a couple of weeks now, and maybe a month. I'm having my first match in Fort Myers, Florida, and my opponent is Dick Dunn, the guy driving the car that night. Now, Duke Kiyomuka actually came down with me that night to Fort Myers, rode in the car with me, because they knew the way I was acting and training, they knew I was nervous. You know, I, I think I was. You know, you're going on stage to be an actor, or you know, but if you're you know, if you're new at it, you don't know much about acting, uh, you know, I was I was just nervous. I it had to do with wanting to give a good performance and, you know, not being you know, not being, having any experience whatsoever. I was less nervous when I went out against a Russian in the Olympics than I was going out for my the Russian was about six, eight, about three hundred and fifty pounds, Whew. a former world champion. I was less nervous going out against him than I was against Dick Dunn. So (laughs) I'm pacing back and forth in my dressing room. Now, let me set it up. The the matches in Fort Myers were in a a National Guard armory. In the armory, they have these great big, uh, they take one section of the building and they they section it off to make uh, offices. But instead of making separate walls, what they do is they have these big sliding plastic partitions that you could draw back all the way to the wall and open up the whole room. Or if you saw them close, they, they click. They, they they click in the middle. They're made of, he- of like a heavy uh, rubber plastic type uh, material. And, you know, they, they effectively, they're not soundproof, but they effectively partition off the rooms. So they had these things closed when we got there. The baby faces went in one, the office down at one end of this long room, and the heels went in the door. Out the other end, so they could come out of different doors to go to the ring. You know, it's always awkward when you're coming out the same door to go the to, to sure. go to the ring. Right. I People you. say, "Well, you're you're together, oh, right. out
1: together. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, but meanwhile, you could open up the the partition in the middle, and you could talk. You could talk over your match. You know, the uh, the booker could give you your finish, or whoever. Sometimes the booker didn't come. The referee would have the finishes, but tell you what you were going to do. That's what a finish is, folks. They tell you what you're going to do at the end of your match. Meanwhile, Duke's down there because he knows I'm nervous. I'm pacing back and forth in the dressing room. And I, Duke is saying, come on, Bob. He said, you know, you got this. It's not, don't bother. And so Don Carson was the first one. And he opened the door. He saw me pacing back and forth. <laughs> and so he he closed it again. He came back and he opened it again. I'm still pacing. And and all of a sudden, I see D- Dick Don. He, he he reaches over. He, he calls, "Hey Dick, come over here." He comes over and he calls Dick Dunn. I see he's talking to him. And uh, what he was telling Dick Dunn, he said, "You see, see that group? You know, this is his first match.
1: Right.
0: You know, he he doesn't know anything about the business. <laughs> he doesn't know how to work. He's probably just an accident way to happen. You know, he might kill you by accident. But here's the problem. <laughs> you see how he's walking back and forth?" I heard him tell Duke that he was mad at you about that car trip you took him on, where you, you said he was not, no amateur wrestler's ever made it. That's why he's walking like that. He's so mad, he wants to kill you. And Duke is trying to talk him out of it.
1: And Don, Don Carson playing both sides of the fence there. He's ribbing you, and then he ribs gets, gets to rib Dick Dunn out of the rib that he did with Dick against you. Oh, he's ribbing so the Carson, Carson had guy. to have been enjoying himself there, just working oh. up everybody on every side. <laughs> well, I didn't hear
0: what he was saying, you know. Right. So so uh to me I was just nervous about the match. But you know, I kept walking and um uh, Dick uh, Carson is periodically calling back and say, Hey look, he's still he's still walking. Oh man, he's gonna kill you. <laughs> so so uh, I went I went out to the ring first and got in the ring and the referee came out, a guy named Joe Flaherty. and he said, uh, Dick Dunn wants to know if you're gonna kill him before before he'll come out to the ring, I said, "I said, we'll kill him." No, I said, not. And "I said, I'll try not to." I said, "I'm, I'm worried about killing myself." And so he called down out to the ring. He got in. He was supposed to be the heel. I'm the babyface, the big Olympian, and all that. He got in the ring like Godzilla was waiting for him, you know. And he he came up and he was singing, "Row, row, row your boat." like trying to be as innocuous and as innocent and, and all that as he could. And we had a, we had a, you know, I don't remember the match. Uh, so that means it was okay. Uh, matches that were that went well. I mean, there's guys I work with, very famous guys. I never remember working with Jody Hamilton, the assassin, and I right. saw a That's the other night where I was his tag team partner. I just, I don't remember, but.
1: Well, so many years.
0: I mean, you guys are working seven days a week. So many years.
1: So many people. I mean, I can see how sometimes it escapes you. I've, I've had situations like that in my life where like this happened. And then I see proof that it happened, but it's like, oh, Okay.
0: I get you. If they went well. Yeah. I just forget it. So anyway, that was, uh, that was not, that was inadvertently through Don Carson. That was my payback on Dick Dunn, you know, like for at least a half hour before the match. <laughs> he was petrified. And I tell you what, 10 years later, when I'm no longer the Olympian, at least not in conditioning and, you know, in ability, because I've had 10 years of not training, uh, when Dr. Death Steve Williams broke in. Right. And I was I was booked with him in the, in the Superdome in New Orleans uh, on a show with Bill Watts. Let me think. That was 1981. So I, mean, I would have been a be business.
1: I don't think Doc started till eighty-two. He was still he was still in college at the time too, but he was coming in in between.
0: Okay, it might have been early. It might have been. Yeah, it could have been at eighty-two. I worked for Watts from eighty-one to eighty-two. So right. on my on my birthday. So yeah, it could have, it probably would have been eighty-two. But he was so nervous. He was so nervous because it was a super dope that it was, I had the same situation. It was just like me. Now I had not said, you know, ribbed him or said anything about, you know, uh, he's never going to make it in the business. Right. But he was so nervous that one of the things he did, he, uh, I I did a spot where I had him give me a tackle, and he and I, I took a bump, <laughs> and before I could get up, he rushed over, he ran over, and he grabbed me by my right arm. It's the only time in my entire career that somebody grabbed me by my right arm. You just don't do that. You always right. grab the guy by his left arm. Unless you're and, yeah, yeah. Well, I never, of I never worked. So he go, he whooped it in the ring, and it's lucky I was didn't trip over my own feet, take a big bump. So I took a, what I did is I instead of coming off the ropes, I had no idea what he was going to do. So I took a i i i actually took a bump through the ropes onto the floor, and I called up, waved the referee over, I told the referee. <laughs> Tell him to calm the calm F down. down. <laughs> calm the F down. And for anybody <laughs>
1: who, who saw Doc in his prime, I mean, he was a lot more trim later on in the 80s. That early Dr. Death, man, he was quite a burly dude. Not saying he was never not scary, but
0: he was a big dude in 1982. Oh, he was a tough guy. I, you know, you know, he was a nice guy. Don't get me wrong. When right. I got to talk to him, but he was, he wasn't real complicated. He was basically what he said he was. He was a football player and a wrestler. Who had one speed, full speed ahead, and you know he was serious about being doing his best. Uh, that's why he was. That's why he's so excited in the ring. I wasn't. You know, we I,
1: I, I, I Well, no, I just don't. Want, I don't want to get you off topic, but it made me laugh because I have another territory show. I do regional wrestling podcast, and uh, one of the co-hosts there, Roman Gomez, we do 1986. And Bill Watts's, you know, it was UWF territory by then. And I was just watching a match the other day, and this is '86. Doc is totally—he knows how to work now. Uh, but he was wrestling a guy by the name of Jack Victory. And Jack, I don't know if he just wasn't prepared, he wasn't ready. He was kind of like I don't know, just not paying attention. But Doc came at him with a worked shoulder tackle, and even his worked shoulder tackle hit Jack so hard he left he left the uh, he left the mat and bounced into the ropes. It was—I uh, had to pop out loud. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, that was not a word bump. Oh, man, it was hilarious. So I can only imagine Doc, you know, nervous, all the nerves running in him and, and uh, at the, the, the speed he was going in 82. I can only imagine. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. It was uh, it was scary. You know, I thought, oh, you know, when he threw me in the ropes by the wrong arm, I thought, I have no clue what he's – I hadn't been telling him to do anything. I didn't have a clue what he was planning. So I thought, <laughs> I think I'm going to take a break here and uh, get out of the ring and see if I can get him calmed down. And yeah, there you I, go. That's Once I did. That is a know, grizzled our, vet
1: move right there. <laughs> Wait, let's just what? slow things down. Calm down. I'm not your enemy.
0: Yep. yep. Uh, <laughs> once, you know, and once I, I got him, oh, I just, I got back in the ring. I had him get a a headlock or something where I could talk to him and calm him down. But, uh, yeah, that, the, so uh, back to how thine, Dick Dunn must have been feeling. Sure. Now, Dick Dunn didn't have, even 10 years earlier, Dick Dunn wasn't an Olympian. You know, when he was going out against me, he didn't have any chance whatsoever. Right. So so if I was to decide I was going to rip his leg off, that's probably what was going to happen.
1: Now, how did they start you? Would you have went over in that first initial match, or was
0: Dick, was Dick Dunn on the yeah. decline already? Okay. okay, okay, I was just curious. No, they, they didn't have me slaughtering, but I'd be, you know, they were they were grooming me uh, because of the Olympic background. And see, it's another thing that bugged me about Jim Rasky. Uh, that year that he spent doing that could have been one of his prime earning years at the other end of his career. Right, that's what I'm saying. If he had used that that first year, learned how to work, and you know, then he had it and his prime earning years might have been like in today's money, three or four hundred thousand bucks. So that's one thing that bugged me about it. It cost him a lot of money. Uh, with me, that no, I I didn't have to go through any. They were planning on using the Olympic background and. Uh, they knew that I was okay enough that you know, in six months a year, you know, within three or four months, I mean, I, I thought I had. If I was, I, first of all, I didn't know how to call a match or lead a match because I was I was a, a baby face, you know, and the heels right. called the matches. But I remember, I remember the first time I went to Miami, or one of the times I went to Miami, I was with Masuda, and they didn't want to beat him or beat me. So they had us go 20 minutes through to called a Broadway. Call Broadway. We, right. we went 20 minutes through. I thought 20 minutes, oh my God, I got three minutes worth of stuff that I can repeat <laughs> over and over and over again. That not mean I'm going to have to do it seven times, you know, <laughs> 20 minutes. And I was, you know, but I, and in Miami, you're in a separate dressing room, so you can, I couldn't even ever talk to a hero. But we went out there and it was, uh, time went like that. You know, he was a, he was a real pro. The good guys and I learned how to do it myself, you know. But you can, you can keep guys that, that don't know what you are doing. You can make them look like they're okay, just by being in proximity, like close enough to where they'll get their hands up, and you can lean around, back up a little where they, you know. You tell the referee to tell them to follow you, and you know, and that way you can you can kill some time while they're calming down. Right. Uh, the other way is to get a hold or have them get a hold and have them take you over in a headlock and talk to them for a while from underneath. You can just tell them, hey, look, I don't know if your mother's in the audience or whatever, but don't worry <laughs> about it. <You> know, <laughs> it's going to be okay.
1: And that goes you know, that yeah. goes back to what you were talking about on the, the first episode about don't hold that headlock too hard because then I can't yeah. can't really hear what you're saying either.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, that first match was, uh, was again, a, a funny story that came out of it, you know, that uh, because of the rib, the, Doug got the rib. Paid back. That's what I mean about Carson being a great ribber. It but who got matter. Don back? Did Don ever get ribbed
1: back out of all of this?
0: No, no, he was, he was. Well, not that I know of. He was. He was pretty slick. Uh, but you know, he was also good natured about it. Yeah, uh, he was. He wasn't mean. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't hateful. Yeah. He, uh, he, you know, I've only
1: seen Don. I mean, I never knew him personally. I've only seen his his promos and things as a manager and stuff when he was with Stomper and, and stuff like that. But. He just comes off as something, like like you would explain him here on the show. He just comes off like that. So I totally, I could see Don Carson being that guy. So it makes me laugh.
0: Yeah, he was a, uh, sincerely, I mean, I don't know how you'd think it. He was sincerely a guy that was seemingly always in a good mood, always ready. He was always smiling, ready to laugh. And I, I mean, I lived with him for six months. I never see him. I never saw him get, uh you know, get off, off that character. So, right. you know, he was fun to be around, you know, he. He did all kinds of things. I I remember one time I was uh, I was laying in an apartment. I had a I'd hurt my ankle or something. I was I was in there just uh, not underwear, but I had like a a, t- a bath towel type thing that I was wearing because uh, I was laying on a couch. He went over across the apartment complex. We lived in an apartment complex in Knoxville. There was probably I don't know a hundred apartments, mm-hmm. and he went over to a party across the way. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, the door opened, and, and in his apartment, I'm laying there, this pretty girl walks in. And she said, oh, hi, Bob. And she started looking at the fish. He had a fish tank. She started looking at the fish tank. And while she was looking at him, she just happened to get up on her tiptoes, and she was wearing real short shorts and, a, you know, a, a, like a just a, a bikini top. And she saw, she's wiggling her butt at me. And I'm thinking, wow, wow nice-looking girl, but I didn't react. I didn't have a clue what was going on. And so after a few minutes, she looked. She took off. And I, I waited about you know, ten minutes later. Someone else comes by, another girl, doing the same thing, flirting around and whatever. Yeah, he was sending girls over to uh, for me to, you know, have fun with if I uh-huh. wanted to. I right. didn't have a clue. Well, I was the kind of guy he was, you know. It right. wasn't a rip. It wasn't a rib. It was just. Uh, it was just. He was. He was a good guy. Yeah, that's pretty um, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I wish
1: I had friends like that when I was in my my, my yeah. early twenties.
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: So I'm glad you told that story. I've heard you in the past mention your first match was with Dick Dunn. Online, the earliest I could find was August 11th against Duke Kiyamuka, But the details clearly there. You you have vivid memories of that first match with Dick Dunn, which had to have I guess taken place before. August 11th. I'll have to dig into two old Florida ads and see if I can come up with the exact date for that show. Where was the Dick Dunn match at? Fort Myers. Fort Myers. Okay. I know where I'll be looking. That's very cool.
0: I also remember working an early match, and you mentioned John Heath earlier, working a, a match with John Heath and O'Galley, E-A-U. I think I pronounce it O or O. Oh, I think it means water. Oh, anyway, g- Ugali mm-hmm. and uh little bitty little bitty building maybe 100 200 people there I was working against coach John Heath and like an early first or second match and all we did was amateur stuff you know John was an amateur wrestling coach so he right. knew and so we were doing like takedowns and stuff and you know I thought it was really cool having some really old school cool. fun <laughs> yeah I thought it was really cool you know we were doing us takedowns and duck unders and rides and sit outs and all that stuff and about about seven, eight minutes, we were like tied up, or we were sparring. It got quiet. I heard this voice from the back say, "When are we gonna see some real wrestling?" <laughs> <laughs> that's that's all they had been. Seeing. Oh, the irony it was it was real. Yes, the irony. We were so so. John John had me get a headlock. <laughs> that way, Big Mouth sat down. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was funny, right? Uh,
1: yeah, it's a good story. Yeah. yeah, you guys are out there uh, giving them real wrestling, if you will, and uh, well, they're they're trained that way. They're wrestling fans. That's what they know. Yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, I think
1: it can be said most wrestling, pro wrestling fans, really never were amateur wrestling <laughs> fans, so they really right. didn't follow any of that. So maybe right, right. maybe they watched it in the Olympics or something when they were watching the Olymp- you know Olympic events on TV or whatever the case may be. Or in general, those are two very different animals. We talked about that in the first episode how you had, uh, you know, paved out a long career in the amateurs, but you knew when you got to the pros, this is a different place, and I need to shut up and listen, so to speak.
0: Well, you know, while we're on the subject, uh, the term mark, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the boys would talk about the fans as marks, and I'm not trying to suck suck up here or play favorite. Let me explain my rationale, being I don't like that, because marks, like the, on the carney, that's the term from the carney. Right, and the from carny, the carnivals, yeah. Uh, Mark was somebody who would spend $8 to win a $2 teddy bear for his girlfriend mm-hmm. or somebody who tried to throw dimes on a plate and would spend five bucks and would never win or whatever. You know, somebody who was just was foolish in terms of spending their money. And I always said, well, how can I mean, unless you feel what you're offering the fans with your performance is worthless, they're buying something. They're not buying Peggy a poke. They're buying, they're getting entertained. They're getting good matches. You know, right. they're, they're getting what they're paid for. And so I don't consider them marks, you know, because I just felt it was, uh, I think the people that are supporting you, you, know, right. you got show a little, little bit of concern, you know, a little bit of gratitude for. I mean, why why denigrate them? And again, I'm not, not trying to curry favor, but uh, to me, the ability to be able to have people that would speak to you uh, if they saw you on the street, uh, even if they said, "Hey Bob, you know you're going to get your butt kicked this week," they'd still be civil to you on the street, and then in the wrestling arena, they'd be screaming at you like they hated your guts. I always appreciated that combination. You know, they could separate the performance from real life. Right. And uh, so, you know, I didn't, want, I didn't want, I didn't want, I didn't want everybody hating me for real. I mean, my, my not a good about, idea. <laughs> Yeah, you know, especially in you know, certain know. southern territories. Oh God. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Ernie Ernie Ladd went to the South as a heel, and he used to say, make, do interviews like, "Yeah, you have the he tell the uh, tell Gordon Sola he say, uh, yeah, you have that white boy come down the ring. I'm gonna kick his butt.' And, you know, here's a guy, <laughs> a black man, a great athlete, Hall of Fame, uh, San Diego Charger, a football player. Yeah, great great pro. And here he coming to the South, uh, you know, and and just you know, be as a heel. Uh, very few guys, very few guys of color came to the the South as heels, because you know they already had uh, with with the uh, prejudice, you know, like right. racial they already bias. Had that, that racial
1: heat, if yeah. you, I, for lack of a better term, back in those days, I get you. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, so, yeah, that's... yeah that's why I respect Ernie so much. But got off got <laughs> er- off here
1: a bit. Ernie only cared about that one color, right? I believe the color green. Yeah. <laughs> that's what Ernie yeah, meant. yeah. All yeah. about. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I, did, I never really thought about that a whole lot. How many you of know, the, the black athletes that came down there were the baby faces a lot of the time because the heels probably did. Ooh, can't imagine how rough it could have been. Certainly in certain, again, certain territories, especially crazy back in those times to think about a lot of stuff. And we, we closed last episode talking about Sputnik Monroe and what he did for segregation in some of the territories. And um, so it's just really interesting to see how everything changed over time though. And you were there, yeah. like you got to watch it change.
0: Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, the uh, legislation, equal equal rights uh, stuff was in the mid-60s. So it was starting to take effect during the 70s. And uh, you were having some integration of schools, although there was, I don't want to get into politics, but there had been some politicking going on that allowed Southern states to uh, be real slow at integrating their schools. But still, it was better. Uh, it had gotten better. so. You know, that's that's a step forward. Yeah, that, that's the real unfortunate part, but you know, that's the way it is. You can't have a country like ours without having all different kinds. You know, we're not we're not all the same type and the fact that we can hopefully try to you know, get along with one another and right. uh you don't have to you don't necessarily have to accept it, uh, but you uh you tolerate it because you people have a choice. They have I, I if I want people to respect my opinion, I have to respect theirs, even if I don't like it. So,
1: I you know I you know I had some notes here about some things in regards to that, but you kind of just covered them for me, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> so of course. <laughs> but I also have some uh, names here for you. I want to run by you that you may have encountered there in your very early time in the Florida Territory. Maybe if you have anything you want to share, any of these names, I'll run them by you, and we can get a few things. Maybe some more stories. Who knows? Okay. You want to tell everybody about a fellow by the name of Don Curtis?
0: Yeah, uh, I'm glad you said. That. I almost mentioned him a minute ago. I think I had one of my first three or four matches with Don, and uh, again because he had an amateur background, he wrestled in college, and uh, we had a pretty, we had a good match. Uh, you know, just uh, he was he was an old pro, and he was able to lead me around. So we had a credit, we had a we had a decent match. I don't remember what we did at the end, but. Uh, I do remember working with him. Yeah, Don very early became a real favorite of mine. I, I would work in, in Jacksonville, and if I was booked in Tallahassee the next day, if I had driven my own car, Don would uh, ask me to spend stay over, spend a night with him and his, his wife, Dottie, <clears throat> spend the night with them, and then I could drive up to, Jacksonville, or to uh, Tallahassee the next night from Jacksonville. And I did that, and he had a he had a, a keg of beer, one of the cooler type things, you know. Had a stick it sticking out and everything. Right. Had a keg of beer in his living room. All
1: right. And, All right, and Don. He a,
0: <laughs> yeah. And he and Donnie were just a, you know, they weren't. It was they weren't real like diehard wrestling people. They were like regular folks, and just had a great sense of humor. Both of them. I just had the best time over there. They made me feel like a million dollars. So I got to know Don real well. And then, uh, you ever hear of Mister Tree Riffic? Hmm. I don't believe so. Gordon Soley got me a gig early in my, I think it was in that first year or two. The Florida Forestry Association uh, was looking for a, a spokesman. Okay. And they came up with the idea of this, you know, the jolly green giant, the giant standing and up above sure. the little girl. Sure. Well, this was this was like a takeoff on that, but it was Mr. Tree-rific.
1: Mr. Tree-rific.
0: Tree rific yes, uh, for the Florida Forestry Association. So um, I made this. I had this suit made up of green velvet. <laughs> it had just. It was like a onesie, zipped up the back, had a big uh, T on the front, and I wore sandals with lace ups to the knee, like gladiator shoes. And I was Mr. Tree Tree-rific. I posed with my hands on my hips, and you know, I thought it was just gonna. I thought I might make some money with it. But I did things like I was with Gordon Soley. He was the one that came up with it. He got the gig. And <laughs> ah, we ended up, one thing, one thing does. we did, we ended up at uh, Governor Claude Kirk. Uh, we were in his office one day uh-huh. for a bunch of presentations. And I had the duty of handing him hand, uh, a check from the Florida Forestry Association for, I don't know, 20,000, 50,000, whatever. A big, it was like a big wooden check. And, uh, I was going to hand it to him. There was, there was, the press was there. They were taping and shooting pictures. I was going to hand him uh, the check. And Smokey the Bear. There was a guy doing a Smokey the Bear gimmick. He had on the bear head and all that with the seeing out the eyes. Uh-huh. So we were Smokey and I were talking before it was time, and we were supposed to walk up to the governor together, and uh, he was going to go on one side, and I was going to go on the other. And so when we were walking up, Smokey got treacherous. And when we got just about three feet from the first step, he hit me with an elbow and took off, took an extra step, and started to hustle up there. He wanted to get up there first. Unfortunately, with his eyes being I didn't have anything over my head. I could see that that first step. He couldn't. So he he hit the first step. He took a bump and broke his head. Oh, man. (laughs) Wow. Well, I'm sorry if you well, had an no, elbow. Well, well, there's a story I didn't expect to
1: come out today on the yeah. show. Learn well, something new every day. Please tell me there are still pictures out there of Mr. Tree riffick somewhere.
0: Uh, the, there are, but the, <laughs> the fleas up to Don. This leads up to Don. Okay. The for, the Florida later that year. The uh, there was another one. Uh, they had a, their convention at a place about 50 miles south of uh, of Tallahassee where uh, they had a parade, and I was on a float with Miss Universe. Wow. Uh, she, she was so pissed off to be, to be on that float <laughs> I with guess, me. I
1: suppose. Oh, God.
0: Uh, I tried, to, yeah, I wouldn't try to hit on anything, but I tried to be appropriate, you know. Sure. she didn't want. To, she didn't want to talk to me. She thought, oh, my God. I said, uh, Miss America, Miss Universe, whatever I am, I thought I didn't realize things are going to get this tacky, but uh and then they had their yearly convention from all over the country they had it in florida that year at the phantom blue in miami beach so don flew me don curtis came and picked me up and flew me down there in his private plane i don't know if it was his or if he rented it but anyway he flew me down there to make an appearance all i was going to do is i got up on a little cabana stand about three feet two feet high and uh I made a speech about welcome the Florida Force Association. You know, just a little spiel, and you know I had my my costume on. Of course, well, when I got back to my room, and I had a room there at the hotel where I had changed. When I got back there, the thing zipped up the back. I couldn't I couldn't get out of it. Stuck. And so and Don, I couldn't find Don. So yeah, <laughs> but yeah, Don Don was a good guy. I had wrestled. I had taken a, a guy at Jacksonville. There was a guy in the audience that kept challenging everybody. So I I went in one time. One of the partners in the business, Lester Welch, was there that night. He told me to break the guy's leg. And I just, you know, before I went out there, I just told him, well, if you want to do that, you do it. Well, I went out there, and I I took the guy down pretty quickly. And I put him in a a, a hold, uh, abdominal, it's like the abdominal stretch standing. It's called the guillotine in amateur wrestling. Right, yeah. Which you give you an idea what kind of hold it is, guillotine. It doesn't take your head off but it does it it, it makes you wish you it makes you wish your head was gone because it hurts so bad so I put this guy in the guillotine it puts all this stress on his on the arm that i got up in the air over his head and stretching back this guy was double jointed I got his arm all the way up there and he just went all the way through with it and came back to starting position so that wasn't gonna work so I ended up going about seven or eight minutes with him and wasn't able to do anything really with it. I hadn't been trained yet with all these hooks and things. So a couple of weeks later, or maybe a month or two later, the guy was back because he had done okay with me. He wanted back. Uh, they asked me to go out there and cripple him or something. I refused to do it. So Don went out there, and Don had the same problem I did. He went about three or four minutes, and nothing was happening. I mean, you know, we go through. You, rushers can put on a deal where... You got a guy that beats you in ten seconds. You know you're you're blood bloody and dying in ten seconds. So here it goes, three or four minutes. Don's not able to do anything. So Don pushed him in a corner and then reared back and grabbed his eye and acted like the guy had poked him in the eye and he wanted to put him. and smacked him and the, and the guy got out of the took off. got out of the ring and took off, which was smart. The guy didn't really poke him in the eye, but that was Don's way of saying I know I'm not going to be able to do anything except kill my own credibility as a pro wrestler if I don't do something with this guy. Right. So that's what he, that's what he did. So, yeah, let me think. I don't think I got anything else on Don. Not right to second.
1: Sure, no. I just, you know, anything you can think of. That's pretty cool. Good stories. Uh, I got a few more names here. We'll try to get a couple of them in. If you think of anything else, we can, you know, close out the show with whatever you want to talk about. Uh, I had Dale Lewis here on the list. Of course, you mentioned already, a former amateur himself and uh, turned pro. Dale never really got to that Jack Briscoe level, but he was certainly a hand in the ring. You knew what he was doing. I don't know if you how much you were really around him or not in the pros.
0: Yeah, uh, I, you know, I had, I mean, I meet a guy that's been two Olympics, Pan American Games champion. Uh, you know, I have all the respect in the world, except we're not in that genre anymore. We're not in the amateurs. We're in the pro now. Right. I know in my matches with him, I, even though I beat him, I wasn't really... Uh, congratulated by the fans very much. Whereas, like I say, even when I wrestled Frankie Kane, Kane, right, uh, Mephisto, Mephisto. right, yeah, uh, even though I got beat, fans would say, Oh, way to go, you know, like I had credibility. So, uh, Dale, Dale, I think I was, I think he might have been in the twilight of his career when I was there with him, right? Uh, I know that, I know that Jack and I were were working out uh, doing takedowns and practicing takedowns at the Jack Briscoe and I were doing takedowns at the uh, Exploratorium and Dale wanted to get involved, you know, former amateur and all that. And he came down, but he, he found out just like I found out 10 years later, uh, after being away from the amateur mat for 10 years, you should go nowhere near it for any reason whatsoever. Okay. Because because if you get on there with somebody who's fresh and, you know, it's in shape, they'll kill you. Doesn't matter. They they're not that good at all. Right. You, know, you you blow up in about three you know, thirty seconds and then, you know, you're just you just chop meat. So uh Dale had a had a difficult time when he came to work out with us, and that was the last time he did that. But you know, I had a couple, I went over to his house a couple of times and he barbecued. He'd married an Australian girl and brought her to the country, this country, and you know, he was a good guy. He uh Oh, I know what. I got another Dale Lewis story. Okay. Dale Lewis, I, I heard this is another way that guys used to mess with me uh, about you you amateurs. Dale had taken on a guy, I think in Tampa, a mark. This guy was from somewhere in the Caribbean. And Dale had taken him on. Dale had the gimmick of if uh, you could beat me, he got $1,000, I think. I think it was $1,000 challenge if they could beat it. Well, the guy didn't beat it, but Dale couldn't beat him either in 10 minutes. So it was embarrassing. The guy was about, I mean, the guy apparently wasn't very big. So I kept, hear, I kept hearing, I heard that over and over again, because the boys will talk about a shoot, a real match, like because that's completely different from what we normally do. Right. And Dale does this, this in front of an audience, a live audience. So somehow, I don't know why, I didn't have anything to do with it, but somehow this guy came back. And he he was going to go again. I went against him. Well, I had heard that you know, I mean, I'd heard that he went. You know, I'd been for maybe five years before, but he went. You know, ten minutes with Dale Lewis. I figured the guy maybe knew something. The guy was about a hundred and seventy pounds, about five nine, lean. He wasn't. He wasn't like a you know out of shape blubbery. But I grabbed him, picked him up, did a suplex with him on uh, top of his head, uh, put the sugar hole on him. He was out about. Oh, 18 seconds! Wow. <laughs> so, so because I was nervous, you know, I thought this guy knew I knew something. Right. I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I didn't want to him to embarrass, embarrass me. Folks out there listening, Ray and I have already talked that he we both face up the fact that I, I can't stay on subject and these stories keep coming <laughs> up that I all of a sudden go take a segue and say, Oh, you thought you were on this path, now we're on that path. Let's go back to uh, taking on Marks in the ring. My first real match, I talked earlier about being a Sputnik in a row training me and hanging around at his apartment, just being around this really interesting character. There was a guy that lived in Sputnik's apartment complex. This guy was about 5'10", about 180 pounds. He was pudgy. He was, uh, wasn't any kind of athlete at all. And he was uh, like a, a Mark. He was a fan not a mark, I should say that, but he was a fan. But Nick was real open with, I mean, he didn't expose the business, but, well, this guy asked me something. I showed him something, like a tie-up or something. So two or three weeks later, I, I knew him. He was around all the time. I see him at the pool and all that. So two or three weeks later, I get to Tampa, to the building at Fort Hester the Armory for the matches, and Skippy Gossett, who Eddie Graham's brother, comes up to me and says, Bob, there's this guy in the audience who's claiming that he wrestled you and beat you. And I said, really? I said, show me the guy. Well, he pointed at that He said, guy sitting over there in the middle of the first row on that side. Well, it was this guy. Oh, I was hot. You know, I hear he's telling people he beat me. So I went down there. I, I said, uh, tell him I'm going to go down to the ring. So I went down and challenged the guy. You know, I said, get in there. He said, I got the microphone. You know, I was hot, you know, stupid, too. <laughs> but I was hot. I got, I, I got the microphone and I said, uh, "Oh, you've been telling people you you worked out with me and beat me. Well, come in here and beat me again." So he got in the ring, and I had not learned any hooks yet. <laughs> and I tried to do things with him, and he got he got to the ropes. And I had him one time. I had him by the head, and my option was the only thing I could do to him was break his neck. Mm-hmm. And for a second, I thought about it. I thought about it. <laughs> I thought about it because I was such. I was feeling such pressure. So what I had to do is I had to let him go. I, I couldn't. I think I penned him, but I had to let him go. And he got out of the ring and went back to his seat. Now think about that. You know, Hiro Matsuda. I hero. I beat Hiro Matsuda in there the week before right. in ten minutes. And I go, I go with this guy, and he gets out and sits you know, no. Yeah, oh my God! You talk about humiliating. You know, and then so, but they realized. You know, Bob did not know what to do. So shortly thereafter, I got a. I, I was given a blind date with Matsuda, and uh, crash learned,
1: course,
0: huh? Yes, I learned a hook. I learned to hook, and uh, I I never had that problem again. And we'll get into the hooking part, but oh yeah, one of the way, one of the ways they trained me. Was they had started? I don't know if they were doing it before, but they were advertising. If you want to get in pro wrestling, come down to the Armory and sign up, and we'll we'll give you a, a tryout. And what they were doing is they were getting all kinds of guys. I wrestled as many as five or six guys in one day that would think they were getting a wrestling tryout. And my my uh, instruction was just to beat them. You know, they, nobody said break their leg, but okay. to, to beat them. Now if something. Something that Eddie Graham did uh, way too many times. One of the reasons I quit doing it was that if the guy wasn't marked, if he didn't have any, wasn't bleeding anywhere, didn't have anything broken. When they a lot of times, the guys would get out of the ring. They would be they'd be all spaced out because I'd put the sugar hold on them, and they had been unconscious. It was just like the sleeper. It works like the sleeper. Right. They'd been unconscious, so I woke them up. And one time, I this guy was out so quick. I I kept the hold on him for. a like ten seconds, and by the time I noticed his his fingernails were turning blue, I realized he'd been out for a while. I didn't know how to wake him up at that time. If Matsuda hadn't been there, I would have killed the guy. But Matsuda got him up, and just like they do with a sleeper old, he, he gave him the external heart massage with the you know the stiff hand in the back, pat, you know, whap him on the back, See, and the I guy. Was...
1: I always wondered where that came from, because I, was, as a kid, I thought that was nonsense. Like, how, how do you knock a guy out and then wake him up by a quick quick jolt in the back? But that was actually a leg- legitimate way to do it, was to get that blood flow going and get him, get him going again.
0: The reason they go out is because both the carotid and the jugular and the neck are closed. Both closed off, right. They're both closed off. So no blood's going to the brain. They go out quick. But, you know, if the heart stops or it slows way down, when you let him go, if that heart doesn't... Get start beating again right, right. away. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it stops completely. So the the pat in the back is called. It's actually it, it works. It's effective as external heart massage. It's just like when the, you see the doctor thumping on the chest. Right when they're, they're sitting up, you know they're laying there upright. They pound on their chest with their hand. Same thing. It's just from the back. So uh, yeah, I was working. With, anyway, I started working with with Hero on on the, doing these hooks and. Uh, uh, oh, I know what it was, Eddie Graham. Guys that weren't marked, they'd get out of the ring. Eddie always positioned himself in the only area outside the ring. They had to walk by him. When they walked by him, he'd sucker punch him in the eyebrow. And he'd bust, he them bust open. him open. Right. Bust him open every time. And that always sickened me. Because amateur wrestling, I spent 13 years, you're trained how not to hurt people. If you hurt people on a regular basis, you're not going to wrestle. Yeah, they'll just call you won't be able to wrestle as an amateur if you hurt people so uh, i just don't
1: know the, the mentality of a lot of the guys back in that era of what drove them to just be i mean i don't know what other word you want to use than than a bully just i'm doing this because i can physically uh you know assaulting people and things i get part of it a lot of the guys defend it by well we want to show them this stuff is quote unquote real you know so that way when they leave here they go tell their friends their family or whatever you know this is what happens and things like that. But at the same time, it just seems you know uncalled for. I don't know. I don't know.
0: There's some there's some sadistic behavior involved, uh, Ray. There's some sadism involved. They they're sadistic. They like pain. Uh, they like inf- inflicting pain. There's some right. of that involved with some of these guys. Uh, you know, I a few years later I had a dressing room talking about it, and Terry Funk was there, and that's the, he said what you just said. He said, Bob, you got to mark these guys. Otherwise, they go out. You know, he said you stretch them and they're you know, they could barely walk. They go home and lay in bed for a week, and then they go back to the bar. The people say, oh, well, there you are. Well, how's that your tryout? They Everybody at the bar knew they were going to be trying out. Right. So they say, well, how you, how'd you your Oh, I went down there. I found out it was all fake, so I, I didn't do it. You know, they're all just phonies. Well, if they don't have any mark on them, uh, yeah. So if the guy's got a busted eyebrow or you know, and that made sense to me. But I said, okay, that makes sense. I don't want to do it. I don't want to set them up for somebody else to do it. Right. So I'm not going to wrestle with Marks anymore. Now I'll protect myself. I had to do that a few times. Well, you know, from other from pro wrestlers, but not from Marks. There's an expression that Graham, I heard from Eddie Graham for the first time, of a guy thinking, thinking he was in a boot factory. When that happens is when a guy, uh, some poor fan, uh, loses it and jumps in the ring like to attack the heel. Right. It happened, it happened one time in in Port Lauderdale, and uh, <laughs> it was me and Matsuda against uh, I don't know who the other two guys were. No, Matsuda was a babyface. What I talk about. Matsuda was tied in the ropes, and me and the, uh, the other heel had thrown the other guy out. and We were pounding on Matsuda, and this guy jumped in the ring. Fan. Well, yeah, the fan. This fan jumped in the ring. <laughs> right. Well, within, <laughs> oh, three and a half seconds, all of us, including the guy, the other babyface who had been out of the ring. Right. The revived. Yeah. All of us, including, including the referee, were beating the crap out of the guy. Yeah. Just beating a, beating the a crap. Yeah. He, one guy comes in. You don't want every, so everybody else to join to, in. Right. To follow him. Yeah. Right. So yeah. he really wanted to discourage that first guy. So, yeah. We found a crack out. He went down, booted him out the apron. Then we went right back to our match just like it had been, I mean, we had to take over on that <laughs> suit again. He didn't right. go back and hook himself in the rope. <laughs> sure, I mean, sure. No, so no, we uh, had to go back. But yeah, it, 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 so that guy, at least for a while, thought he was in a boot battery. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, sound
1: logic. You know, you guys got to protect each other, even if you have to hide the fact that you're doing. You hear the stories all the time of heels getting. So much heat that they're in quite danger trying to get back to the locker room, and a babyface actually has to come back out and kind of attack them and beat them up all the way back to the locker room in order to keep the fans away. So it's 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 crazy times, but it's fine at the same time, as long as you're not you know getting shanked or anything.
0: Well, we got some great stuff to talk about in San Juan, Puerto Rico.
1: <laughs> I can only imagine.
0: <laughs> yeah, because uh, that but that, that over the years and that's just oh that's a horror story for you know it's I so mean, funny
1: everybody has a horror story from the you know those eras in Puerto Rico like everybody had a riot it it wasn't like Roddy Piper went down there and had a riot it's it's basically everybody who knew how to get any form of heat they were even like Larry Sharp and Jack Evans from from New York they went down there one time and cut a kind of a racist promo on TV leading into a tag team match at uh you know at one of the stadium shows down there in the late seventies I, I think it was. And even they they had a uh, a near riot on their hands. So I mean I can only imagine.
0: <laughs> I can't wait to get oh, there. Well that reminds me I we got time. Uh sure. I forgot my, my best Dale Lewis story. Yeah I was gonna ask you before we, we got done here, did you finish that Dale Lewis story? Dale Lewis uh I wasn't there, but I heard all about it and I can visually I can see it visually in my mind. I'm not gonna lie and say I was there. I had seen the week before, or the last, or the, the time before when we were in Puerto Rico, I saw that when Dale, I watched all the matches from, this, from the dugout because I was trying to gain experience from watching. Mm-hmm. And I saw that Dale, after his match, instead of coming right back to the, the we were in the baseball stadium, you got the dugouts. Right. Now, from the edge of the dugout to the edge of the other dugout, there's a big fence, you know, for foul balls. So foul balls don't go back and hit the people behind, the, you know, sitting in a, in behind a plate. But over the dugouts, it's open. So people could get up on top of the dugouts and actually jump down on the field if they wanted to. So I saw a lot of times there'd be somebody standing up there, but I saw heels like the Missouri Mahler, Larry Hamilton, would just stride towards them, like aggressively looking aggressive, like, yeah, come on and jump down. I'll kill you. And nobody ever jumped down. Well, the time I've been there before, I saw Dale after his match, he, he beat. Some local, a local Puerto Rican guy wrestler, Dale went looking around the ring for something. He found a chair under the ring. And he took the chair, and when he got by the uh, close to the uh, uh, dugout, he put the chair over his head, like to protect his head from somebody throwing something at him. Sure. Well, what he did, he showed everybody he was scared. So the next week, the week it happened, he got up. He was on his way back to. He got within five or six feet of the of the dugout. A guy from the up on the dugout has probably seen what happened the last time jumped down in front of him. Well Dale's only about five feet away. Now whoever was watching the match had gone back up the tunnel into the into the in the clubhouse inside mm-hmm. to tell that, that the match was over, so there wasn't anybody out there to help Dale, but instead of just the guy wasn't big. well I understand it, he was 280 pounds. So instead of bowling through the guy, he just, well, run through him. The guy didn't have a knife or a gun or anything. Right. Dale Dale backed up. And when he backed up, four or five more people jumped down. Oh, so no. Dale, took, Dale took off. He took off. Now, where he thought he was going, I have no idea. <laughs> but he took off towards, towards left field.
1: Maybe he he's took still running. Off. Is he still running today?
0: <laughs> well, you know, the boys, you know, the word went out, and all the boys from both dressing rooms ran out there. Okay. So as a result, we came back, Saito, uh, Masai Saito had, uh, had his, uh, one of his nostrils was ripped. He had to have stitches. It oh. wasn't ripped off. It was just ripped up away from his face where mm-hmm. he'd have, have it sewed back on. Jeez. Missouri Mahler got hit on the upper arm with a pipe that his, his arm turned yellow and purple and blue for like a month and a half. But various guys got dusted up and bruised and whatever, but... And they finally got Dale turned around out. And, out. and by the time they got there, there was, the rest of us from two hundred to five hundred people—I'll go with the low one—were out on the field. I mean, some of them just thought it was fun. They were running around just—they want to see what was going on out there. Right. And uh, they finally got Dale back to the dressing room, but uh, he didn't have—he didn't have a scratch. That's right. what
1: was—he he got out scot free. Everybody else, yeah, <laughs> didn't have bandaged a and run. bruised. Wow. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah, well. <laughs> I was told by Sam Steamboat when I first started, don't ever run. And that that makes sense to me to this day. Oh, okay. That's good
1: sound advice from the original Steamboat. Sam Steamboat is on my list for the next episode of Guys I Wanted to Talk to You About. So that's kind of cool you uh, mentioned him here as uh, we're getting ready to wrap up things. But I feel like a Puerto Rico story is a great way to end an episode. And if you have any more, I, I look forward to listening to those in the future as well. But... Yeah, I'm never disappointed whenever somebody begins a story with, yeah, down in Puerto Rico, because you just know (laughs) something good's coming. Yeah, something good's coming.
0: (laughs) Something's so bad that's really good. You're right. But, you
1: know, I'm I'm not trying to knock the island of Puerto Rico. It's crazy how insane and intense the fans were down there for a few decades anyway.
0: Well, the thing is, they have stateside wrestlers, you know, they – Puerto Rico is a territory, American right. territory, but they have the stateside wrestlers always beat the locals, and I think they'll have locals, I would, if I was booking it, I'd have some locals wrestle each other, and I would put I would put some regular matches against, and then maybe the main event, I'd have the main event, they were using Jose Lothario uh, most of the time for the main event, because... Uh, although he was Mexican, he spoke Spanish, and right. you know he could make interviews that they could understand. You know he could, sure. And he was he was over down there. You know he drew he drew pretty well. Okay. So, yeah, it was a dangerous place. Oh, I got another Puerto Rico story, and in, in the baseball arena, uh, <laughs> full blown riot, fifty cops uh, out there on during the matches that all ended up in the dressing room, and uh, after the riot started, I, I went up finally asked one of the wrestlers why are all the cops in here? Why aren't they out there getting rid of those people out there? He said, they're, they're all hiding in here. That's why they're in here. Oh, well, there you go. That, ex- that explains <laughs> yeah. That's
1: enough said there. Uh, yeah. We'll try. We'll dive into that one a little deeper if there's more to it next time around. Oh, but, a uh, lot,
0: oh, lot more.
1: Oh, I can't wait then. I'm looking forward to it as yeah. I'm sure all of the listeners are. I hope you guys are really enjoying these shows. If anybody's tuned in thinking, oh, this guy's just going to tell us about what he did week to week in the ring. No, you guys see it's way more than that. In fact, very little of what you're doing in the ring thus far. And just a whole lot of great stories, Bob. I'm enjoying myself, man.
0: Well, thank you, Ray. Now, just one last thing on this one about Puerto Rico. Yeah. Professor Tanaka, uh, Dick Slater, Jim Barnett, Johnny Weaver. Uh, just some of the cast of characters. Oh, man. Uh, so, yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. What a, what, a, what a list of uh, characters there. I was going to say, you finish those names. What do they do? All walk into a bar. I was waiting for the punchline. That's quite a quite no. unique group of individuals. So. Yeah, it's, uh,
0: they're all they're involved with the story. Let's put it that way. Oh,
1: well, that's awesome! And it's so great it's, you have such a vivid memory of it, Who everybody was involved in everything. Can't wait to we'll talk about that at the top of next episode. You guys have that to look forward to next week here on the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. Bob, want to thank you again so much. And remember, guys, you can follow Bob, go friend him over there on Facebook. Look him up, Bob Roop on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can also follow me on Facebook.com slash wrestling grenade. And also follow me on Twitter, or X as they call it now. That's at wrestling grenade. That's at R A S S L I N grenade. Bob, once again, thank you so much for letting us be a part drop, popping a squat on your stoop, so to speak.
0: Well, thank you, Ray. I enjoy working with you, my friend.
1: All right. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to Bob Roop once more, guys. And we'll be back again next week with more great tales, great, great tales here on the wrestling stoop.